Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about politics, funnily enough. And we talk about history, we talk about activism, we talk about uh, struggle from the perspective of people who are um, part of those struggles. And my name is Ros Ward and I'm your host and our producer of the show is Liam Ward. Hi. No relation. And if you enjoy the show, please help us spread the word on social media to um, make sure that people who might be interested in this kind of thing get to hear about it. And we also have a Patreon account because that's the in thing to do. And it is really uh, very much appreciated the people who have signed up to that already. Patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio Podcast. Even if you just chuck us a couple of bucks a month, we can improve the quality of the show and go out and do some of the extra exciting things that we would love to be able to do if we just had a bit of cash to do it. So the two guests on the show tonight are both um, Red Flag Radio second time or even third time around for Jerem actually, but uh, veterans of the podcast and of the struggle, Jerem Small and Fleur Taylor. Welcome back to Red Flag Radio. Hey, how's it going? Hey. So what we're talking about tonight is the campaign that both of you were part of. And it was a campaign that culminated in 1998. So it's 21 years ago uh, that this campaign happened. Some of our listeners may not have been around at the time. So we're going to go through um, right from the beginning, I guess, to think about the lessons that we can learn uh, from this campaign. So it was the campaign to prevent this mine um, from being built in a place called Jabaluka. And it was um, proposed to be a uranium mine on Aboriginal land. And Jerem, can you take us back to kind of the political context of the time? Um, so 1996, Howard was elected. It had been 13 years of Labor government. What was the kind of reaction of the left to John Howard? And nobody knew at that stage how long he would be around. And then just for politics more generally, what was the kind of context of the left and kind of broad struggles or... At yeah. that time. Yeah. So as you say, um, John Howard's election in 96 followed 13 years of a Labor government. So broadly speaking, back in the late 60s and 70s, there was struggle busting out all over and, you know, every single social movement went forward and made important gains. Then by, you know, the early 80s and especially after the Labor got elected in 83, it was time to forget about the struggle, according to the Labor Party, and everyone gets their shiny black shoes under the table and co-option is the name of the game, obviously with unions, uh, but there's a with the ACTU and the Accord, but there's a version of that that happens with um, an environmental bureaucracy, a feminist bureaucracy, um, with the Aboriginal struggle and so on. Um, and then once we'd gotten you know out of our heads the idea that we fight for anything, that's when uh, John Howard comes in in 1996 and just starts laying waste to um, well, to all sorts of things. So just trying to remember through those first few months of 96, there was an announcement that um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission was basically being scrapped and defunded. Um, and ATSIC certainly had its problems, but it meant, you know, the only representative body for Aboriginal people in the country was being destroyed. Serious attacks on higher education, the opening up of postgraduate uh, studies, um, you know, just across the board for fees. Um, serious attacks on workers, so the stripping of awards, you know, again, Labor had opened the gate and, you know, Howard 
you know, push that gate um, even further open. And of course, um, you know, stripping away of the so-called environmental bureaucracy and John Howard and I think his mining minister, um, I forget his name, declaring that Australia was open for business mm. and that the- John the, Heron. John Heron, yeah. And the sign of that was um, that it was going to be open slather for uranium mines um, all around the country, including the Jabaluka mine. So it was that early part of the, well- those first few Howard years, every morning you turn on the radio, it's like getting a kick to the head. They're doing what? Can mm. they even do that? Um, so his basic strategy was just to hit everyone as hard and as fast as possible. Um, I that, think we had yeah. some practice with resistance in Victoria a bit because we'd been under Kennett since 1992. So although we hadn't been able to stop Kennett's agenda, there had been a lot of you know activism and fight back in those years before we got Howard, I guess. And you were both active socialists at the time, or? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I joined the ISO as it was then in 1991. Yep. I joined yeah. in 1994. Were you fairly new socialists in the scheme of things? Not Jeremy. I mean, he, he'd <laughs> yeah, been well, an independent socialist <laughs> oh, yeah. for so, well, like a decade before. Does it really? Yeah. <laughs> a bit cynical. Anyway, we can talk about that another yeah. time. But yeah, I'd been an organised socialist for about five years. Yeah. Um, Thought I knew a thing or two, but yeah, anyway. So, Fleur, then, this place, Jabaluka, and the idea of the mine being built there, do you remember when you first found out about that plan and, you know, do you remember, like, looking at a map to see where Jabaluka was and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> I first heard about it, I guess, towards the end of 1997. Um, and, yeah, Jabaluka is located in um, Arnhem Land um, in the Northern Territory, um, and it's it's slap bang in the middle of what's called Kakadu National Park. So I think there was there was that sort of triple threat there that they were, you know, it was uranium mine, you know, one of the most deadly substances known to humanity in a national park on Aboriginal land when there was clear opposition from the traditional owners, the Mirai people. And, do you th- and were people shocked then or was that all part of the kind of Howard spray of attacks was like, well, you know, was that something that had been um, – sort of proposed before? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that had been on hold through the Labor years was that the Labor Party tried to have a foot in each camp of uranium mining and the massive, you know, very um, active anti-uranium mining movement of the 1970s by saying that when they came into power in 1983, there was going to be a three-mine policy. Now, that policy consisted of them going, how many mines have we got now? Three. Okay, we have a three-mine policy, Mm. no more than three mines at any one time. I mean, it obviously doesn't engage at all with the science or the reality of what uranium mining does and what the products are used for and so forth. So the first, you know, one of the first, you know, trucks rammed through that gate, you know, that that was open when Howard came in was to say there were 25 uranium mines, uh, roughly 25 uranium mines that had been just basically, you know, in neutral for the last 10 or, or 15 years that they were ready to sort of floor and and say, you know, one of the things they would say at the time is that, you know, Australia had, you know, it's like 60% of the world's usable uranium, you know, yeah. e- easily mineable uranium. Come get it, but, on, Howard, yeah. but only sort of 10% of the market. Mm. And, you know, I probably got the figures wrong, but it, but those sorts of things. And, the, and you know, so the, the boosters for the mining industry in general um, and for uranium mining in particular were absolutely gung-ho about that. And, and I mean, I think amongst environmental circles particularly, like, you know, uranium, the campaign against uranium mining in Australia has a really long 
and, um, you know, honourable history um, and, you know, did succeed in, in kind of stopping uranium exports and, and all that sort of stuff in the 1970s. And, um, yeah, there was certainly definitely a, an intention and a willingness to fight about that particular issue, you know, because of uranium and its connection to the nuclear weapons industry. Mm. And I think everyone too, uh, well, sort of as Fleur said, appreciates like on the government side and also the protester side just the enormous symbolic of enormous symbolic and practical importance of Jabaluka out mm. of those 25 as you say if they can do that there in the middle of Kakadu mm. against Aboriginal witches well so it was all part of that thing of crashing through mm. Mm. and so the traditional owners from the beginning the Mirar people um played a role kind of throughout this campaign of protesting against it trying to stop the mine from happening how important was that and kind of what was their role at the beginning of the campaign then? Crucial. Like, yeah, and the Mirror opposition to uranium mining is a long-standing one. Um, there's a couple of movies around Dirt Cheap was one that was made in, I think, 1980, and there's some bits of that in something, uh, a really nice little doco that you can find online called Fight for Country, made by Pip Star, and that documents the process through which um, the Ranger Uranium Mine, which is also on Mirar land, it's about 20 kilometres up the road from um, where they wanted to build Jabaluka, was pushed through um, against the wishes of the Aboriginal people. And it's just um, an awful story of the then senior traditional owner, Toby Gangali, uh, being... Um, Badgered and harassed mm. and bullied and, you know, attempted bribes and just, you know, just hounded, hounded to the to the end of his life. Under the name of... Consultation. Yeah. Yeah. So you consult about the 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 type of the mine, the type of the mill, like every technical detail of it, the height of everything, the placement of everything, the thickness of the pipes. Like you consult, like he's hauled into these meetings day after day after day, until finally it gets to a point where he literally says, "Look, I, I can't fight anymore." And at the end of this process of, you know, badgering and harassment, yeah, and all the rest of it, this so-called uh, consultation. Um, he gets given a pen with which to sign the agreement and then gets given the pen as a memento of this fantastic day. So his daughter, um, Yvonne Margarula, was absolutely, um, when she became the senior traditional owner of the um, the Mirar people of, of that country, um, w- was absolutely determined that um, history wouldn't repeat itself and that the opposition that Toby and all of the elders, the, that entire community had, um, to the mine would um, would win out this time. So they took a stand and started uh, setting about finding allies, including Australian Conservation Foundation, um, student groups and so mm. on. I think it's important as well to to just stress that, like, because the Mirror had been living with the, the disastrous impacts of this gigantic open-cut ranger uranium mine on their land, poisoning their environment and their waterways, you know, for the previous you know, 10 or 20 odd years, years, you know, they they were, you know, fully cognizant of like how, how, how much they wanted to stop Mm. um, Jabaluka and ultimately to close down Ranger as well. I guess there were two parts to the campaign then that was obviously led by um, the traditional owners and kind of driven by them in a lot of ways. One part was the blockade that happened on the land itself and then the other part was the city-based solidarity stuff which you were both involved in. But Fleur, can you say a bit more about the blockade? I mean, it's pretty incredible 
that I think it was more than 5,000 people at some point were part of that blockade, given the location of the, the mine or the proposed mine site. There were something like 500 arrests um, during the blockade and people were sort of, um, yeah, just staying there for weeks on end, right? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> Robert Hill was the Environment Minister under Howard and he had found, dusted off from 1979, an environmental impact statement saying, yep, Jabaluka's cool, it's all good. And so with that approval in hand, they were ready to start construction as soon as the wet season came to an end in roughly about May, March or April of 1998. And so with that timeline in mind, it was possible for a national coalition of environmental, student and Aboriginal support groups led by the Mirror to call for masses of people to travel all the way to, to Jabaluka. And in, as you described, the, the numbers are as you described, and it was like you can see it in Pip Star's film Fight for Country as well, a lot about that, you know, mm. like a like an incredible coming together, you know, big names, nobodies and everybody in, in between and, and people sort of taking nonviolent direct action, walking onto the mine site, trespassing in solidarity with the traditional owners, having mass marches, locking onto equipment, um, getting arrested, in their hundreds and and all that sort of stuff and and there was so there was a constant kind of um you know travel and communication and and um um interplay and cross fertilization of people going to the blockade like i think you know jerem spent months you know in the friends of the earth office assisting with bus bookings and just like you know there's just hundreds dozens of people traveling you know four days or whatever it was on a bus to get up there staying for a week or three weeks or three months or whatever they could afford to do for the whole of the dry season mm. making it physically impossible for them to actually start construction of the mine. And, I mean, that was a huge victory. That was a, a huge victory, one of, one of the big victories, I think, of, you know, protest actions and blockades and stuff in, in recent history. It's like, you know, they wanted to start building that mine and they couldn't start building the mine. And and I think that was, that was really important. Mm. And, of course, what it did do as well, as people came back from the blockades to the cities, having been through that incredible experience of being on country, being led by strong Aboriginal women, you know, about you know, and being taught about like fighting and what they were fighting for and, and, you know, having that sort of sense of moral purpose about it as well. Like people came back politically charged up and used to blockading, used to protesting. So that was incredible in terms of like the the sister campaign in the cities, like that when we talked about blockading, when we talked about sitting in, I mean, that was all just the bread and butter every yeah. day of what people had been doing. And people had been trained a bit in that. So was it in the news, was it in the newspapers, was it on the TV news, any of the coverage of the blockade or the campaign? I mean, how did it start to spread into the cities or was that something that took a really active kind of political intervention? Who's, I, I mean, maybe you can't say whose exact idea it was, but how did that emerge, Jerem? Well, because uh, me and Fleur rocketed into our first Jabala Correction Group meeting, I think right at the end of 1997, and that, like it was a well-established group by that time. Um, I, I guess what we particularly, and like I should say, the basis for that was a whole bunch of students from, I think it was the Students and Sustainability Conference, which had been held that year in Townsville. Dave Sweeney from the Conservation Foundation had rocked in there, booked a bus and got all these students to, you know, visit the country, meet the people, learn something about it. And um, to their credit, big numbers came back to Melbourne and Sydney, especially, and started up Jabaluka Action Groups. Um but at that time, um, like the thing that, that I guess I remember us two trying to really push in there was 
the idea of getting larger numbers involved, that it wasn't just enough to have small numbers going up to the blockade and, you know, a group of a few dozen sort of standing out on St Kilda Road outside North Limited, which was the owner of Energy Resources Australia that was developing the mine, that we really wanted to get marches of thousands in the city and wanted to involve, you know, hundreds or thousands if we could in some sort of civil disobedience. So I actually remember... Anyway, it was a bit of, eventually we agreed to have a protest. I forget the exact um, date. And I remember. Um, you know, being, Sunday, 1998, I think. There you go. I remember <laughs> being very excited, though, because we got our first leaflet and I, you know, trundled down to Melbourne Central Station um, in central Melbourne with our first leaflet and started handing out the leaflets and saying to people, stop Jabaluka Mine. Pe- people literally thought that I was speaking a foreign language. Like at that time, it would have been early 98. No one mm. had heard of it. That changed a bit once the um, blockade kicked in. Um, a couple of months after that, but uh, uh, I reckon a lot of the, the sort of recognition that Jabaluka ended up getting was just that hard slog of people putting leaflets in people's hands, getting material out and talking to people. Um, there's, yeah, not much of a shortcut. There was definitely a, a quite a lot of mass media interest around the time of the, the commencement of the blockade in sort of mid to late March 98, mm. because Peter Garrett, Bob Brown, That's like true. a whole lot of, yep. you know, celebrity type, you know, in big names and stuff were there and and, you know, marched onto country and all that sort of stuff and onto the mine side and things, um, you know, so I think that probably brought some, you know, yeah, so it sort of point. meant that yeah. people had kind of, heard, especially the people that were sort of in the lefty Enviro type of crowd definitely sort of started to hear about it. And then there were sort of, as people investigated this project a bit more, there were some connections that were drawn out in terms of, I mean, I guess as socialists we would see some of these connections um maybe, uh, you know, a bit more, have a bit more of an eye for them. But things like, you know, the board, the people, the board members of North, the company that were building the mine, having connections with people who sat on the Environmental Protection Agency, um, the way that the government kind of interacted with the corporation to support them to build the mine and all of those kind of things that we see in capitalism, these connections between politics and the interests of these businesses and wanting to prop them up and do whatever it takes and have the police protect their offices and all of those kind of things that we've seen the same thing happen recently with the um, protests against the uh, mining conference here in Melbourne, the IMARC conference. So were people surprised by any of that stuff or was it just the general scene was kind of anti-capitalist or did this campaign help to bring people into some of those anti-capitalist politics, do you think? Hard to tell. I reckon we added something to it, definitely. Well, I, I think it was I think it was one of those situations where where socialist socialist ideology or socialist politics can can be common sense because it's the truth. And so when you state it and it gels with people's recent life experience of protest and stuff, it makes sense, you know. So like when we started saying things like, look, the Jabaluka miners, like the, the the people who are making the fat billion profits out of this, they're not up there in Kakadu like with a spade. You know, they're down here in Collins Street. They're down here in St Kilda Road. This is where we have to hit them hard at their corporate headquarters and stuff. This was a couple of years before the anti-capitalist movement started mm-hmm. up, you know, through the Seattle World Trade Organisation protests and stuff. But I like to think there was, you know, an element of that there. And I think the great thing that Jerem did in, in sort of, I've talked in sort of meetings and things about how finding these kind of like connections wasn't as simple as Googling things 
these days. Like Jerome had to sit in the state library with like all these microfiches and kind of like cross-referencing all these business journals and things like that. But it, but we he ended up with this map that showed that the the guy who was the chair of North Limited was also sitting on these other boards, as you mentioned, the Environmental Protection Authority yeah. of Victoria. You know, a whole the, the and um, you know, the the North Forest Products, which is like the largest wood chipper. So that was like an end to all these forest greenies who were kind of much less, you know, street protest people and more like lock on vegan type people and stuff. And so, you know, so so making those kind of connections was was critical. And it also, I think the other thing, the the other point that we used to hammer as socialists within the campaign is like the importance of mining capital to Australian capital. And I think as well, it's not as though we were the only people that were doing this, but we we really helped to carry this argument and prosecute it the whole way through. There were some people maybe in the campaign whose first impulse was about protecting wilderness, you know, protecting the environment and stuff like that. And so for us, talking about genocide and colonialism and, and the stolen land and the rights of Aboriginal people, I mean, for me, you know, for as for many other people, like, Jabaluka was a land rights campaign. It was primarily about, you know, protecting Mirar sovereignty over that land and the other issues kind of fit into that. And so talking about the importance of mining capital to Australian capitalism and the way that this country and this, this society was set up, I think opened the door to have all kinds of conversations with people about what was wrong with Australian society and, and, and so forth. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, North Limit is proper blue blood Melbourne capital Mm. like i mean north was spun out like the incredible pile of wealth that was pulled out of broken hill um north is one of those companies along with south corp that became another you know giant australian corporation bhp itself obviously um so yeah they were extremely well connected um i think it was ian renard who was on the board of melbourne university for a whole bunch of time like so this guy who was like bringing in like the most disgusting you know attacks on staff at melbourne uni and saying that he was for education and stuff was on the board of a company that was producing uranium that gets used in nuclear weapons and bloody chernobyl and and you know, on to Fukushima, you know. I mean, there was just so much there to work with. Yeah, so we had, we had some good times outside the Melbourne Club and other, you know, um, you know, some of the great sites of Australian capitalism during those connections and occupying the Environment, Environmental Protection Authority. Like, I think that must have been one of Kennett's last appointments. Oh, yeah, a guy who's trying to, you know, leave 20 million tonnes of finely pulverised radioactive waste on Aboriginal land in the middle of Kakadu National Park. Exactly the sort of man that we want in our EPA, which probably goes some of the way to explaining just how toothless our environmental regulator has been in recent years. But anyway. Absolutely. So where did the idea then for the actual blockade of the North offices come from and the plan for that? Because that was sort of like the culmination of the city campaign, would you say? Well, when you say culmination to me, that sounds like the end of something. But like, I mean, there are there are a few there are a few sort of blockades and and things. There yeah. was, the, the, I think, the first time that we stayed overnight at um at North Limited offices was it was almost kind of like a vigil, I guess. It was like the thirtieth of the thirty first of August into the first of September, nineteen ninety eight, because the first of September was when Yvonne Margarola, the senior traditional owner, was facing trespass charges in a Darwin oh, court yeah. for action. You know, walking onto her own land in um, as part of the uh, as part of the blockade. So I don't know why we thought it was a good idea to stay overnight. Maybe it was just that everyone was super gung-ho and, you know, liked camping or maybe it was just that we had to get so early there we thought we might as well stay overnight or I don't know. But we had, like, you know, 
bands and singers like Chris Wilson and Kerry Simpson like playing in the in the dust of the nature strip and you know all, all, all the kinds of things that you associate with that and you know held a blockade of the of the of North Limited and then you know the the astounding and outrageous news came through mid afternoon that Yvonne had actually been found guilty and I think it was at that point that the mood really sort of hardened you know and somehow some non water based paint Red, of course, appeared. And, yeah, the facade of North Limited, that was the last time we actually touched it because Mm. we were never allowed to approach it after that. So let's just re-emphasise that point. Mm. The traditional owner of the land was arrested, charged and found found guilty guilty of of trespass trespass on their own land. On the mine site, yeah. Welcome to Australia. Yeah. Okay, so some paint was dispersed, allegedly. Applied, <laughs> yeah. yeah applied to about, you know, I think it was around foot, about then yeah. that Andrew Bolt started taking notice of the protest centres and I think he, he wrote an astounding number of columns mm. about a campaign that was, well, it was a big campaign in Melbourne terms, but, you know, was Jabaluka the main game for... Australian politics. I mean, you have to you have to wonder when you see how many columns Andrew Bolt actually wrote about it. Because mm. I forget how many blockades we ended up doing. I think we did a couple of half day ones because mm. th- there'd been a thing of going down there on a Friday, maybe it was, or yeah. once a month, and having Something. a bit of a thing to make people honk, and yeah. then we'd sort of push that along to okay, let's actually disrupt their business as usual. Yeah. Somewhere, how we got yeah. the idea to have like a week long blockade from Palm Sunday, which has traditionally been a day of protest against um, protest for nuclear disarmament and 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 so forth in yep. in Australian politics and and stuff. So from Palm Sunday up until the end of Easter Thursday, so like the entire week. Um, um, I, I don't know where the idea came from, but everyone was really for it, and we did it. <laughs> yeah, which sent. North Limited, like North Limited bought full page ads in the Herald Sun and I think the Age as well, um, with a picture of some dude in a suit saying, I can't show you my face because I work for North Limited and I'm being targeted. It was just like, it's sort of, well, yeah, anyway. So that definitely boosted the profile of yeah. the of the, um, of the blockade and we ended up, um, like we, we didn't actually manage to get the place locked down on any of the days, but it certainly was not business as usual down outside uh, for once. Was it for once? Four seven six. Four seven six. Yeah, that was another. Yeah, four seven six St Kilda Road. So it had a similar effect in some ways. So then the I might blockade recently. Yeah. Did it have a similar vibe to that? How were the police and things? If anybody was had seen the coverage of the blockade of the International Mining and Resources Council, the, um, the police now are. Uh, a lot more savage. Yeah. yeah. Liberal pepper yeah. spraying. Like yeah. the, you wouldn't want to, like what the cops did, because that sort of worked out, like North Limited, it's a standalone building housing only North Limited, plus some shitty little cafe who got a lot of publicity in the Herald Sun, cue tiny violin for every time <laughs> we blockaded. I know. I can't I know. sell any coffee. Um, but yeah, it's so it was, it was actually quite a decent target and it was one entrance at the front, one mm. entrance at the back, so quite easy to blockade. Easier than the exhibition centre. Which had 20, yeah. the exhibition centre where iMark was uh, yeah. held, which had 28 entrances and you know, mm. multiple car parks and secret tunnels and whatever. What the cops did to try to... Um, uh, counteract that uh, sort of advantage that we had um, in terms of a small number of entrances was to stretch us. So they, 
the cops effectively blockaded that entire mm. block on yes, St Kilda Road right. so they could s- smuggle in North employees through mm. neighbouring car parks, yeah. through a garden one time of some house that happens to be on the other side of the block. Well, like so, effectively, yeah. North though, North had given most of their employees the, the, the day off. It was, re- you know, the week yeah. off. It was really just kind of like they were taking handfuls of people in just to kind of say, oh, we did stuff, you know. What are yeah, the, yeah, but and and the cops were reasonably like you know that people were up against horses and being shoved around. Oh yeah, I mean people got beaten, but like yeah, they didn't Com- use compared to Armark, like yeah. yeah, like the the twenty years in between, and in particular the time mm. since um, I guess the war on so called war on terror has started. Mm. Like you mm. know the cops have got so many more powers, have been given so much more authority, so many more toys, so, so much more political backing by yeah. the likes of Dan Andrews and all the rest of it. So. And in a way, like, because I remember having this discussion with you, Fleur, about, like, at some stage we thought, actually, if we had mass arrests down at North Limited, at the particular stage that the campaign was at, it would probably build the campaign. It would, you know, lift the profile, increase that sense of, you know, the company's under siege, mm. which by this time was affecting its stock price. Um the cops just wouldn't make arrests. No, no. So we, we, I don't know what we would have had to do to get arrested. Like, they've obviously done the same sums as us and thought, yeah. no, we don't want to give these these bastards any more publicity. Yeah. So, um, But, yeah, so that that four-day blockade I thought was just a real triumph. You know, it was, mm. was in the hundreds each day of yep. people that would come back and get roughed up and come back for more. Um there was a fair bit I mean, of- it was on the news every mm. night. It was it was like there's not much going on in yeah. the week before Easter anyway, kind mm. of thing. Harold so Sun like and- Yeah, it yeah. was it was it was you know, being talked people whinging about the traffic on St Kilda Road, what's new kind of thing and yeah, and, yeah all all that sort of stuff. But there was a there was also a huge coalition of groups that were involved in it as well. Like there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of moral protection for us, I think, in the terms of like some of the more respectable people who were mm. maybe not up there linking arms, but were nevertheless there like delivering a workshop or a speech or something like mm. that and giving, you know, like like symbolically kind of making common cause. Like it was it amongst, I guess, a, a broad spectrum of political opinions, the blockade was supported. Mm. And when was it that Bono showed up? Oh, that was. That, <laughs> you never blocked that. That's in the video. Roz is referring to um, in Pip Star's Fight for Country, which you can access on the internet. And there's also, I would um, encourage people to visit um, mirar.net as well. Oh, because, yeah. And if you look under Uranium, there's. Um, Fight for Country and some other films that you can you can watch in, on there. But yeah, so like. Like just to set the political scene, like there, there's also a process of reconciliation, capital R reconciliation going on, um, which is a way of trying to co-opt Aboriginal people, you know, into the Australia Settlement Project and so forth. And part of this was like what was called a sea of hands. So it was like people from like different, like particularly sort of rural country women, sort of like more conservative kind of churchy type groups creating these like massive sea of hands to show support mm. for Aboriginal people and stuff. And then once it had been. Sticking them all in the grass. Yeah, yeah. once it had been put um, up at Parliament House, you know, to a great fanfare or something that was sort of like travelling around. So it came to Melbourne. It might have even been that that Palm Sunday or sort of, so I think some other some other event or rally yeah. or something like that. Bono happened to be in town. He came down, and you know, Pip stars, you know, just just one of those classic filmmaking moments of being there, the right in the right spot at the right time, where where Jackie Katona, who was the CEO of Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation, one of the you know leaders of the campaign, and Gary Foley were sort of discussing the 
whether you know, it was pros good or and cons not, yeah. of whether we should get Bono, you know, over and involved and stuff. And um, yeah, I won't spoil. I won't. I won't spoil it. But you should watch it. Um, nice he's moment. just say it's a very big plus point for Gary Foley, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. That he didn't. He did not like Bono. D- just to throw one other thing, like in terms of the blockades, it wasn't wasn't big numbers, but I thought it was significant at that time. Uh, well, John Cummins was still alive. The um, you know, who'd been through the Builders Labourers Federation and at that time was um, an official with the uh, CFMEU, uh, the main construction union here in Melbourne. And he was great. Like, he he got us on a bunch of construction sites in St Kilda, in St Kilda Road in the lead up to that blockade, mm. uh, doing meetings about it. The CityLink um, tunnel build site. I remember you yeah. scampering down to that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did more of the St Kilda Road ones. And it was just like every time you'd have a really good reception, you'd have a couple of workers afterwards who were really interested. Um, the fact that we had, um, God, what was the band that we had playing on the opening day? It'll come back to me anyway. It's sort of, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, like it was, it was an attractive, it was yeah. an attractive package to people. So we got a few construction workers there. And when we'd been pretty severely roughed up on the Wednesday, and then it looked like anyway, we wanted mm. as many mm. people as we could on the Thursday. Called the CFMEU again, and um, you know, and we got you know a good few dozen, I think, construction workers down to lead off our victory march. That's at right, six and in enough the to sort of put at the front and go <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, come don't on, fuck come with us, <laughs> which is very yeah. reassuring when you've been up against the cops for a few days. Yeah. It's just it, it does change the equation when you have a few organised workers around that there mm. might be consequences for the cops if they really go in hard. There was so a that, coalition yeah. of left wing, you know, sort of construction unions, um, and you know, like certainly even if they, you know. Cummins and CEU were more important in terms of getting people down there, but we certainly had a lot of material support from like the metal workers and the ETU and, That's true. you know, paying for our toilets every time we had a rally and, you know, yeah. just generally just generally putting their hand in their pocket and letting us kind of come into meetings and, and you know, put things in their journal articles and that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Port loose and generators at street. It was painters and dockers who played on the first day of a blockade, so credit uh, to yeah. them. Yeah. So that was Easter. Then you get to July of 98 and then one of the polls. That's 99, by the way. Oh, was it? By now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by now we're in 99. Okay, yep. I'm 19. And um, so we get this poll that then says 67% nationwide opposition to the mine. So this was a mine that, as you said, Earlier on, heaps of people hadn't even heard of. You thought Jabaluki, like, what are you talking about? That, but that now is well known, and that actually the tide has kind of turned against the idea that you can just go and dig up Kakadu National Park. So, at what point did you feel like you were this was about to be a victory, or did you realize that it was a victory? What were some of the factors in, in that? The campaign was a victory, but I saw, you know, a headline about Jabaluka two days ago, you know, like there's like <laughs> until capitalism's gone, is it is the story ever really over? But to, I won't get too sort of, you know, long range and existential. I mean, I think I don't think at that at that point we would have felt like, oh, yeah, it's it's about to blow and stuff. I mean, what had been happening and Jeremy can talk more about it is that, you know, North share price had been going down and down. It was listed at the beginning of 1999 as one of the year's dog stocks. 
you know, and and that was, I think you have to say, it was purely because there was just so much odour and activism and protest around that mine that, like, funds managers with not a lot of time to spare were just kind of like, North Lubin, hang on, isn't that something to do with that? Yeah, no, won't be investing in that. It doesn't look like it's really going to happen, does it, you know? And yeah. and so there, there was a slump in uranium prices worldwide. But it has to be said that, um, you know, I think one of the, the reasons why we wouldn't have kind of assumed that things were going to turn out all right was because there, I'm, I think maybe it's fair to say in the campaign there were some divisions about like where to go from here kind of thing and there, there was definitely, you know, uh, in as much as the Mira and the Gunjami supported the, the city campaigns and the blockades and all that sort of stuff, they also had their eye on other irons in the fire, you know, they were getting World Heritage Committee people to come and sort of rule against it. They were visiting the UN in Paris, you know, they were, you know, they were trying to sort of do parliamentary manoeuvres and and, the, and that sort of stuff. And, I, I, you know, I don't know whether Jeremy remembers more about that. There, there was but. a bit of a tension between, um, like, trying to think of, okay, how do we escalate the sort of, you know, people-powered mm. campaign on mm. the ground further um, and, you know, whether that was counterposed to... Uh, getting off to the United Nations and all the rest of it. I mean, the, you know, that that was an argument in the campaign. And we tried, you know, obviously both happened, but I didn't actually see the win coming, to be honest. Like, it was interesting because we were, like as Fleur says, we, we were pinning the um, the share price of North to the ground. And there's, there's two factors in that. One is the low price of uranium, which is itself at that time the product of um, a very vigorous anti-nuclear movement around the world and especially in mm. Germany. Mm. So um, this was around the time or maybe it was a couple of years after that that um, the German government announced it was exiting nuclear power, but it was that that vibe was around. You know, they were trying to move stuff around to reprocessing centres in Germany and 20,000 people would turn up to square off with the cops. So there was that sort of opposition to- yeah, there, there was there was all of that, and that definitely, um, you know, to the extent that affected the world price of uranium. Mm. So mm. that was a drag on North Limited share price. And then the other factor is, yeah, the the sort of stockbrokers or whatever. It's like I remember reading an article in the Financial Review about it. You know, why does a company like BHP that sells nothing to the general public still uh, market itself? And it's because like a, a big company like BHP or like North Limited back in the day does thousands, tens of thousands of interactions with people buying and selling shares, supplying goods to it, um, you know, just all these sort of small inconsequential interactions. And if a percentage of the people in charge of those interactions just think, oh, I'll just get a second opinion on this. Oh, wasn't there something a bit controversial about that? I'll just leave that for now. If a percentage of people do that, Mm. it does materially affect the share price of a company. Um, And it took, like it was someone else in the campaign that noticed it first and um, like the the price of Energy Resources Australia and their parent company North Limited, every time we did a significant action, either up in, you know, um, in the Northern Territory or down here in Melbourne, um, you could see this could see this, this, yeah. this dramatic fall. So eventually, we'd done enough that this other total scumbag company called Rio Tinto bought out North yes. Limited. And now. then it was sort of like, what's Rio Tinto going to do yeah. kind of thing? And I think nobody knew for sort of like six months. And I, I think in a campaign when you don't know what's happening and look, it just sort of, you know, it just kind of dies away, I guess. And, and uh, you know, look, it, it sort of goes into hibernation, I guess. I mean, there's plenty of other things. Like one of the things that was coming up at the time, I guess, was about uh, the nuclear dumps in South Australia, which is still a live issue. So, yep. like, you know, quite a lot of people probably, you know, uh, 
refocused around some of those issues. There was also Aboriginal solidarity things here in Melbourne and Gary Foley, you know, had been instrumental in getting Melbourne JAG to face that question head on. Like it's not just about people 3,800 kilometres away. Who are the people here? You know, connect with them. What are their struggles and, and that sort of thing. But um, I think the, the key thing about Rio Tinto buying out north is that, um, you know, in, in the end they couldn't they didn't have the stomach for the fine. And I think the thing that we've left out saying, which was absolutely critical, was that the Mirar did uncover mm. a legal loophole. And the legal loophole was that in the contract that all of their fancy pants lawyers had kind of put together and stuff, they had neglected to put in a clause saying that they could process the they could chuck the um the the ore from Jabaluka to the Ranger processing plant. And so that was a game changer because what it meant was because they immediately objected to that and that meant mm. they were going to have to build a $200 million processing plant right there, you know, at, at Jabaluka. Because they couldn't build a road and it, and it became, Yeah, and it became uneconomic, you know, and so that was another nail in the coffin kind of thing. And so Rio Tinto probably wanted to get the political glory by saying, you know, we, you know, they, they saw the writing on the wall that, like, you know, this mm. campaign was, was never going to give up in terms of um, trying to stop Jabaluka and so they... I believe, chose to make themselves look good by saying, oh, yep. we've listened to the traditional owners and um, we agree yep. that we shouldn't put the Jabaluka mine in. Yeah, meanwhile they're trashing Aboriginal rights, you know. Oh, uh, right, uh, left <laughs> and fucking centre. Other parts like, of the world. Yeah. And they had uranium in their portfolio already, the the uh, the Rossig uranium mine in Namibia, which was developed by Rio Tinto, you know, God bless their souls, under the apartheid regime, like when the apartheid regime of South Africa was illegally occupying Namibia, that's when Rio Tinto when developed that uranium mm. mine. So Rio yeah. Tinto are quite prepared to mm. make billions of dollars out of blood-soaked assets, but mm. I think, you know. No, that, you, that was just yeah. purely. But, yeah. but what you were saying, Fleur, like oh, f- from the corporate headquarters, oh, this is our chance to look good. Mm. There's been a big Reconciliation campaign. Reconciliation action plan, anyway. Yeah, yeah, mm. all of this sort of stuff. They so, run a lot of ads to Rio Tinto yeah. and BHP. So, so, so in the end, like, you know, there's that whole conjuncture you know, without the Mirror people opposing and without all of that, you know, on the ground stuff that we did in Melbourne. Could have had a different outcome. Absolutely. Mm. And and so by the time Rio Tinto had bought North Limited and then decided not to proceed with the mine, like the incline had been dug, they were at the stage, they were, they were ready to they start ready gouging to the, 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 yeah. Yeah, the uranium out, um, at, at least stockpiling it. Um, so now, you know, that incline has been filled in uh, it's been revegetated. It, what hasn't happened is that it, it hasn't been handed over to the Mirar people, um, which is what the Mirar people's demand is, mm. that it be handed over to them and that they would fold it mm. into, um, I believe this is what they're still saying, um, mm. into Kakadu National Park. Um, so that hasn't happened. Um, and as you say, Fleur, you know, like I'm sure Rio Tinto, like they've been around for 100 years, they're mm. just waiting for the, the next the conjunction, next the next generation to come and They'll have another go. You but must have but had- I'll tell you a company that had been around for a hundred more years that isn't around anymore, and that's North Limited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and, that, and that hole in the ground since eighteen eighty eight will have been will have been spewing out its toxic shit. Yeah, um, as we speak, if it hadn't been for Mirror people in the whole campaign that you know me and Fleur and so many other people were part of. So yeah. in the end, yeah, it's one of those rare things, which is. Yeah, you, you can point to the like. There's even yeah, there's no Jabaluka mine. There, there's no Jabaluka mine, and there's there, there's actually now no mining at Ranger. They're processing the tailings still, and the you know, I mean, anyway, that's a whole 
vast, toxic, long-lasting thousand-year mm. story about what's going to happen with that. So there's plenty more battles to fight. But, and what would, yeah. what would be your main kind of takeaway from that experience of being in this campaign? Well, I mean, we apart, have to apart, capitalism. Well, yeah, apart yeah. from all the obvious ones, like if you don't fight, you lose and, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think one of the things that stood out for me when I was looking at this, you know, from a couple of years ago in terms of like the, you know, 20-year anniversary of the blockade and, and all that sort of stuff is that we used to talk about the Mirror and and say, you know, because they were quite a small group of, of traditional owners and, and family group and stuff and, and they were about 35 adults and a bunch of kids, you know, we'd say all the time in talking about the Mirror people and their, and their country. Um, and now those kids have grown up and I was, you know, privileged to, to meet and, and be in a meeting with, with some of them a couple of, uh, like a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, they're all stepping into their roles as traditional owners, as leaders of their people. If you go on the Mirror website, like you will see that, that like Jabiru, which is this, this tired sort of FIFO type of mining town and stuff has been regenerated. It's all about like, you know, like cultural kind of renewal and regeneration and, and things like that. And and to me, I think that's one of the, you know, it would have been so different, you know, if 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 they were still defeated, you know, if they'd been defeated in, in this mm. campaign. I think that's a really important thing to remember that, you know, had that sort of human impact and, and, and so forth. So that's. Yeah, transformed know, that's a, the, the people's yeah. lives. And that, that they've been able to. Um, you know, to win some battles in terms of regeneration and restoration of the of the Jabaluka decline and the and the Ranger Mine side mm. and so forth, win some concessions out of the mining companies, and also inspire a neighbouring um, traditional owner who was you know one sole person to kind of um, who had the responsibility of um, another uranium deposit called Kungara, and you know he he's been inspired to kind of like rule that out completely and so forth. So it's just another piece of the puzzle, like locking up that. Um, you know, those dangerous ore bodies um, that, that mining companies are always trying to, to get their hands on. Yeah, the alternative version of history could be not just Jabaluka mine but a whole bunch of other uranium mines because people think, you know, those companies think oh, there's money to be made, you make it, that's capitalism. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the current government um, or at least people in it are having a go at sort of once again trying to rehabilitate mm. uranium mining in, you know, new green guys or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, like to be, you know, to, to go from a situation where you're handing out a leaflet and people are saying, Jeb, Jeb, what? what? What are you talking about? To, you know, yes, people have heard of it to the extent of 67% saying that it's shit. And then, you know, being one key part of bringing down this massive corporate empire that had lasted for more than a friggin' century. I mean, like, yeah, it's an obvious point, but I just don't think in this world we get told it enough. You know, ordinary people, extraordinary people can can change shit, you know, we can remake the world. Um, yeah, and yeah. I just, well, that's yeah. a fantastic note to end on and it's partly why we sit here and put together this podcast to um, learn these lessons and to speak to people who are part of these struggles. So thank you both so much for coming and joining us on Red Flag Radio. And I just wanted to plug that Marxism 2020, the biggest left-wing conference in Australia, is happening Easter weekend. So um, don't go and blockade something that Easter uh, come to Marxism and hear from Gary Foley, who we've mentioned a few times in this show. And the event for Gary Foley's um, session speaking at Marxism is on Facebook, as is the whole conference, or marxismconference.org on the website to check out the full 
lineup of speakers, um, me and Liam mm-hmm. are speaking. Jerem's speaking. Uh, yeah, I've got yeah. a couple of gigs. I'm, uh, apparently, like I haven't talked to Gary about this yet, but apparently... Oh, he, I think he, you're in conversation I with... I think he wants a conversation. I think I'm the other part of that, Great. the minor part of that Maybe you can talk about Bono for Get a bit. See if he still feels the same, I bet he does. Could be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it should be a great session and a great conference. People should definitely come. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs> <laughs>